The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Laura Bennett, the editorial director of Slate, and I am so excited to be hosting this season of Working. We are going to be focusing on the New York Comedy Club and cultural institution Comedy Cellar, which was founded in 1982 and has since been the starting ground for comedians like Chris Rock and Jon Stewart and Sarah Silverman and many, many others. This season, we'll be focusing on how the people of Comedy Cellar work, from rookie comedians just beginning to test out their own material at the club, to the comedians who've been fixtures there forever, to the -the behind-the-scenes staffers like its legendary booker. We will start with Noam Dorman, who has owned Comedy Cellar since 2003, when he inherited it after his father's death and currently runs the place. One thing we do touch on in this interview, and one reason you might actually have heard Noam's name recently in the news, is that Louis C.K., who also got his start at the cellar, did a surprise set there a few months ago in the wake of the sexual harassment allegations against him, and that made a lot of people very angry. Since this season is so anchored in a particular place, we are doing our interviews at the Comedy Cellar itself. Well, specifically, we are at the Olive Tree Cafe next door to the Comedy Cellar, which is part of the same building and functionally the club's backstage or upstage, if you will. And that's why you're going to hear some restauranty background noise and also why sometimes the people we're interviewing might pause to say hey to someone who's passing by. Hope you enjoy. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm the owner of the Comedy Cellar. So if I'm not mistaken, you inherited the Comedy Cellar from your dad in 2003? 2000. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Take me back to that. So what what was it like to inherit this from your dad? Did you grow up in the Comedy Cellar? Well, it, no, the Comedy Cellar opened in 81, which was the year I was already at college. So I didn't grow up in it. And then most of my adult life, uh, I had been a musician. I owned the Cafe Wa next door and then and the Village Underground around the corner. And then I was playing music five, six nights a week. So then when my father died, yeah, then I, I inherited it originally with his wife, kind of like my stepmother. She's the one who did all these paintings and stuff on the wall. And then I didn't really want to run it. And it just, then I, I only had a couple years left on a lease next door on the Wa, and, and the landlord died and I wasn't sure if I was going to get another lease or not. And I kind of had to make a decision where to throw my future in. And I threw in with the Comedy Cellar because we own the building here. So that's really how I ended up yeah. doing it. So I ended up selling the Cafe Wa and just devoting myself to comedy. And then I eventually bought out my father's wife. Why did you think at first you didn't want to run it? Because, like in the Cafe Wa, I was in charge of the band and I was performing. And it was very, it was actually at the time much more successful than the Comedy Cellar. That was the place that had lines every night to come in. And this was my father's thing. It wasn't really something that I... And, and there's two layers to it. One, it was, it was my father's thing. And then the other thing is that the 
in the end, it's the comedians who are the real creative forces in the plays. So to some extent, there's just this feeling that, you know, we, I kind of put the lights on and give them a microphone, but that it's not a, you know, it's not a huge accomplishment of my own. Do you own. still feel that way? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'm not being falsely humble. I understand we do it. We do many things better than the other clubs do. And I don't believe that it's luck that we're, you know, kind of doing so well. But yes, I do feel that way. Yeah. So... Were you interested in comedy when you were growing up? Was it, I mean, your dad yeah, obviously was. I had a normal, was. normal interest that kids, you know, my generation was the generation where Saturday Night Live came out and Steve Martin was at the, you know, the height of his fame, wild and crazy guy, right at, the, you know, when I was exactly the age for that. And but you weren't Murphy, like a comedy hit. No, it wasn't like Judd Apatow, you know, the stories that Judd Apatow would sit home and transcribe Saturday Night Live sketches because, oh, that wasn't what you were doing. because he, he figured he would never get to hear them again. Because it was like in those days, there was no, you couldn't even record it. Or they just had VCRs kind of coming out then. So, so how did your dad get into this in the first place? So he had, um, we had the room downstairs, which was not really doing much. I was trying this and trying that. And this guy named Bill Grunfest, who later went on to become the, I think the head writer of Mad About You with Paul Reiser. He came in and he suggested to my father that he could bring comedy down here. It was like a typical deal where he would keep the door and we would take the food and the drinks, and that's how it started. So did you see your dad over the course of his life get more into comedy as he got deeper into this world? Yeah, he became, he became really involved with it, mostly in the personal relationships with all the comedians that he developed. That was very, very important to him. And he, he died of cancer, and, and he had like a... Like in the hospital for like six weeks or something. And there were a lot of conversations we had at that time. And one of the things he told me was that this, and my father had a lot of other big successes in his life, but that the last 10 years of his life was the happiest time of his because life. Because of the cellar? Yeah, because of the cellar and because of how he enjoyed the community. What about it made it so happy? What did he love about this place? He loved hanging out with the comedians. Do you love it too? I, I love it. I don't think I love it as much as he did. That might just be that the comedy cellar in those days was smaller and the group of comedians was was smaller. So it was just all a little bit more intimate. And then it might also have something to do with the differences in our personalities. Well, also, I'm much younger than he was at the time. So now I have a family. I have three kids at home. And every minute I spend here is at the expense of it's in some way spending time with my kids or not getting up in the morning with my kids where he was already an empty nester and nothing else was competing for his time. So he could just hang out, you know, without any worry. So tell me about the early years of running this place when you first inherited it. You have no, your musician background, but you don't really have experience in comedy. What were those early years like? I was always semi-involved in the place. It wasn't like I just walked in and didn't know what was going on. And in many ways, it's just much easier than what I was doing at the Cafe Wa because like I said, the, the, most, the most important and the most difficult part of the product that we're selling is done by the comedians. So that really makes it much, much easier. In the same way that when you're owning a bar is much easier than a restaurant because Jack Daniels makes sure that the, the liquor in the bottle comes out good. When you own a restaurant, you have to prepare the food. And that's way harder. When you have a bar, you just have to make sure the atmosphere is nice. And, that, and, and again, that's a huge challenge in and of itself. So tell me about the basics of your job running this place. What does it mean? What do you have to do? 
I oversee everything. I have a general manager now um, and had for the last five or six years who is fantastic. And I never had that before. So, so a lot of the things that I used to really worry about keeping tabs on, she's taken off my plate. But I do uh, oversee the, the booking every week with Esty. And again, Essie's been doing it for you know 30 years, so a lot of times I just rubber stamp it. When you have some kind of objection, what's, what's the basis of it usually? The objection might be, first of all, it could just be something that she overlooked. It might be that I, I saw someone I didn't think they were doing well, or it might be that I think that there's too many consecutive comedians that either don't have a high enough certainty in terms of how they'll go over, or they might not have a high-energy comedian as quickly as I feel we need to have one. That's the usual kind of thing. Who are some of the comedians you have the highest certainty level that they're just going to kill it every time now? I think, uh, like, Greer Barnes. I mean, I mean, he always kills. Joe Mackey, Sam Morell. There's a, there's a lot of really, really good comedians. Okay. How long have you been doing this? How many years has it been? Because I haven't Six, done the math. 16, 16, 16 years. 16 years yeah. So the comedy world has changed a lot over the course of those years. How has your job changed along with the, I mean, with the rise of social media, with a sort of ongoing simmering conversation about political correctness, with, you know, an age in which comedians can so quickly become radioactive? How does all that affect your job? Well, last year we had this, you know, really horrible, traumatic year because when Louis C.K. was was dropping in, and we got a lot of. A lot of social media abuse about it, including threats of violence and things like that. What's the aftermath of that been like for you? Now that we're looking at it in the rearview mirror, it's not clear to me where real life ends and where the, the perception of real life as seen through Twitter begins because we were very, very worried about how it was going to impact our business, but um, we're okay. Was there a dip at all? Did you sense any impact in your business? I don't think there was a dip. I don't think there was. And you've talked a little bit about how you have a new policy that people can walk out in the middle of a performance if they object to whoever is on stage. First of all, have people availed themselves of that policy? Yeah. And how do you feel about it? I mean, is it working out? I was happy that they did rather than be pissed off or, or whatever. I, I thought it worked nicely. I mean, that cost us money, you know, but whatever. So, yeah, I, I think it worked well. It was, it was, I mean, it was interesting that, like, if, if Louis would come in and close the show, we would have a, a table or two might walk out. Meaning, like, kind of they'd already seen the show they came to see, and they're like, let's get out of here. If he went on, like, third, almost nobody would walk out. They, they, would, they would stick it out if they still wanted more comedians afterwards. So did you start strategizing about where to slot them in on the no, lineup? No, 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 no. I, I, I actually preferred if he would come in at the end because I, I, I mean, I, I was just, the worst part of it was having unhappy customers. And I would, anything I could do that people wouldn't be unhappy was what I wanted to do. So, so during that whole flare-up, how did you, I mean, did you lose sleep over it? Do you yeah. bring that stuff home with you? Like, was very, what was, was your very, life very like during because that? Because, you know, the press would write just the most outrageous and untrue things. I mean, I really learned this firsthand and they would take things out of context. They would gut my point in some way. You know, it was very, very disturbing to see that. Very, very disturbing. Had you ever in your career had a stint like that that was as stressful in the same way when the Louis stuff happened? No, that, that, was, that was the scariest thing I've been through. I mean, in one hand, you know, it's like 
everybody should have my problems that that should be the worst thing that they should go through <laughs> is is you know but i had never been through anything stressful like that where i thought i could lose my livelihood did you ever think you were gonna have to shut down the place or what was the most dramatic outcome that occurred to you i didn't think i would have to shut it down but i thought that we could i mean i told i asked my wife i said well what happens if this really you know affects our standard of living and god bless her she's like i've had less before like she grew up she grew up like in poor in Brooklyn. She's like, I've had less before. So which was a huge thing for me because you can imagine having a wife, you're going through all the stress and then your wife is like angry at you about it. It would it would become impossible to live that way. But she was very, very supportive. So if Lou showed up tonight, you let him on? Yeah. Well we have this swim at your own risk policy and if people we'd put him on if he wants to go on. But I think it's calmed down because he's been touring comedy clubs all over the country now. So we, we I, I feel like we're no longer doing something noteworthy. I think all but one club, Comedy Works in Colorado, I think all but one club has been putting them on. So, you know. During the peak of all this stuff, did you start thinking about having to, like, scratch certain comedians' names off the marquee if that was going to help with the bottom line? Aziz, for instance, is somebody who, you know, it's a very different situation what happened with him, but, like, was there ever a moment when you thought that you were going to lose customers, so you were going to have to start keeping people like Aziz off your stage? It never, it never got to that. But I did have to ask myself, at what point would I buckle? You know. And what was the answer to yourself when you asked that um, question? I, but I was ready to go to the mat. I, I was ready to take a lot of pain because I felt it would pass and that I was doing the right thing. It's not about how I felt about what anybody's done or hasn't done in their lives. I didn't want to become part of the mob. I didn't want to do that. We have all kinds of procedures and institutions and, and mechanisms to mete out punishment. And I didn't want to be called on 15 years after some fact that I read a paragraph about in a newspaper and decide that, oh, this person can work and this person can't. And, and I, I mean, I'm going through the whole thing, but like one of the arguments I had with Ted Alexandro, who was a comedian who was pretty publicly opposed to what I did. And I said, Ted, if we were sitting at the table having coffee and you confessed to me something that you did 15 years ago that you were ashamed of, would you expect me to throw you out? And, and, so, and I really felt strong. Like, this is just because everybody's looking. The fact is, we all know people who've done things 15 years ago that they should be ashamed of, and nobody thinks that a, their boss should find out and fire them. So, right or wrong, that's what I felt, and I, I did not want to become part of the mob. Right. I don't feel like we need here to, you know, obviously, like, relitigate the rightness or wrongness of that decision, but I am interested in how practically it's changed how you, you do your job every day. And whether you feel like it's something that's still a bug in your mind as you're looking at Estes lineups or as you're... I stubbornly try to avoid absolutely as much as I can all those pressures and just choose the best show. Because I, I really feel that once I start down that road, it becomes impossible to not become a hypocrite. It's impossible to start separating my personal feelings and, and you know I, I judged this one but then I found out that this guy did something similar but nobody knows about it, but he's my friend and this one I don't and and, and or it, it's just I, I just want to call call it balls and strikes and, and do it in good faith 
And that because in the end, that, the audience wants to see the best show, period. Is it as important to you to have relationships with comedians as it was to your dad? Do you have those personal relationships? Very important. And I have a lot of personal relationships. And by the way, it was tricky with the thing with Louis because not every comedian was happy with the decision. And some comedians didn't want to go on the show with him. And some comedians, so, you know, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of fancy footwork and a lot of sensitive politics I had to play. Right. And that, and that was scary too. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. How long did it take you, well, first of all, to just get good at your job, to get good at running this place, and to figure out what makes a really good night here, like a really good lineup? Yeah, I think I was always good at it. To be honest, I think that that's something that I inherited from my father. I think I always had a natural sense for it, whether in music or in comedy. And I think that the job is, one of the hardest things about the job is not getting too enamored with yourself. I think that it's pretty obvious to everybody. I mean, to everybody who is getting laughs and who's not. And I know that some club owners and some bookers see themselves as, to use the word of the curators, you know, and they don't see yourself as a curator. <laughs> no. And, and they're going to try to teach the public their more sophisticated taste about what's funny and what's not funny. And I'm, and I have my own taste about what's funny, not funny, but I think that's a, that's an egotistical mistake. And I think it's not a formula for success. So when someone's jokes are just bombing night after night and you, you know, there may be their friend of yours, there's someone who's a friend of the house. Is there a protocol by which you say, men, you got to stop coming? We just we give them fewer spots. And, I mean, they know when they're not going over, you know. It, it's difficult sometimes, especially the more common thing is when somebody's been doing it for a very long time and they kind of, they all go into ruts at certain times, kind of like the way authors have uh, writer's block, this kind of thing. Do you feel like it's part of your job to tell someone when they're in a rut? Or no, I don't tell like them. They, they know? No. No, I don't tell. I mean, somebody asks me if it's one of the very few comedians that I have good friendships with almost all of them, but there's a, only a small number that are intimate friends. And if an intimate friend were to ask me you know, for an honest opinion, 50-50, I might give it to him. <laughs> but I try not to. They, you don't, they you, don't want to hear it from me. Have you ever tried stand-up yourself? No. Would you ever do it? No. I, I, and, and what would not, it take to get you on yeah, stage? Well, and the thing is, I, I am kind of funny. But um, <laughs> but uh, there's another element of being a stand-up comic, which is not simply being funny. And that's the, my father says, the compulsion to, to do it, to perform it and to be on stage doing it. And I don't have that. And You mean to like get off on the response in the room and to really... They like, you know. live for their sets. You know, and listen, I, I, hey Joe, I've been you know, surrounded by musicians all my life and they love to play their love of the stage is nothing compared to comedians these comedians i mean they will go all over town most clubs barely we pay the best most clubs barely even pay and there's free spots there's bar shows all over town they will go all over town for five minute spots in crappy rooms just to get on stage why do you think that is so how is the relationship between musicians and their craft different from the relationship between comedians and their craft? Well, the, the obvious part is that you can play music 
at home and quite affectingly and uh, and get a lot of satisfaction out of playing beautifully all by yourself or recording something, you know. So you don't need the audience for that. Where actually comedy doesn't exist without the audience. So they have to have that. But then on top of that, there just seems to be something about their personalities that require or seek this particular source of approval out or whatever it is. I mean, I, I hope I don't sound like I'm disparaging and no. I'm not. It's just, they're a unique breed. They, they know that they're a unique breed. That's why they only like to hang out with each other. Do you like hanging out with comedians? I love to hang out with comedians, yeah. First of all, they're funny. And you also can say whatever you want around them. You don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing. It's not like Thanksgiving dinner at your mother-in-law's house where it looks at you like you're crazy. Like, did you just say that? So there know? are no sensitive, thin-skinned comedians? No, I can't say there are none, but it's <laughs> it's not something one worries about. I mean, obviously, you, you can't. If you have some, like, hateful, racist opinion, that won't fly. But presuming you're not, you know, a Nazi, um, but, yeah, you can say whatever you want. You can make whatever jokes you want. You can even discuss politics in a very, uh, in a very blunt and politically incorrect way, and everybody's fine with it. Why do you think the cellar looms so large in the cultural imagination? What I don't know. I think that much of what goes on here is not about the comedy. And, and it's, you know, I spent a lot of, you asked me what I do during the day. A lot of what I do during the day is I'm reading emails from customers who complained about things. I'm following up on those complaints. We send an email to every customer after the show asking for their feedback. Do you read all the complaints that all come into the inbox? All of them, and I, and I answer them all myself. And then I follow up. And I, like, I think tomorrow we're having a meeting with a waiter who a uh, customer complained about, you know, you know of course... Does he complain complaint. about like rude treatment or something? He complained like that the waiter was short with him and, and he had trouble getting a drink. The, the point being that I don't know that the other clubs are into the customer service business in any kind of serious way. Maybe they are, but you know, when I've gone to them, it, it hasn't felt that way. And I think that's a big part of the reason people come here. And it rubs off because it's also part of the reason that the comedians like to come here because we're good hosts to the comedians too. We try to treat them the way we'd like to be treated ourselves. And so it's a warm environment and they like to hang out here. So it all feeds on itself. Was there a moment when it kind of clicked for you when you were like, I can run this thing. I know, I know what I'm doing here. No, I, again, I, I you know, I, I was, I didn't lack the confidence to run the place. I, I didn't expect it to grow as it did. And I made, you know, decisions one after another, like expanding and opening around the corner and, you know, various aesthetic decisions of building the room and whatever decisions I made with the various TV shows that have, that have come in here. And, and, and now we have Comedy Central show, all these things. And they all, for the most part, have been working nicely. What do you think is the biggest mistake you've made running this place in all of the year years? It's going to sound egotistical if I don't. They asked, I think they asked. President Bush one time that same question and he didn't he didn't cop to a mistake and he got a lot of blowback for you it. You gotta cop to a mistake. It can't be one of those like job interview self-flattering mistakes. It's gotta be a bona fide mistake. The biggest mistake I've made, it might have been opening in Las Vegas, even though it's going pretty well, but it's a lot of extra stress and work. Do you get bored of listening to comedy night after night after night? I don't listen to it night after night. So you don't sit there and you listen to it? No, no, I don't. I, so what are you doing when people are on stage? I mean, sometimes I go down and watch. 
And sometimes I'm just sitting at the back table with the comedians. And sometimes, you know, we have a whole nother world that's sprung up here in the olive tree now of like, like a lot of journalists and um, opinion writers and stuff like that from CNN and Slate and the Times, where they, they hang out here now. And I like to, uh, you know, because I went to law school, so I have that interest too. So I spend a lot of time just, you know, yapping about politics with, with people. And that's a bit, I enjoy that too. Okay, just get back. I, I can't really identify any big mistake I made. I will tell you that my biggest worry is that I'm not on top of things like I used to be. Things like the consistency of the food and things like that, which seem to be going okay, but I, I know if my father were alive, he would be disapproving that I'm not He would be like it. sampling the fries and being like, these aren't good enough? Yeah. And, and, you know, have we, that level of attention to detail? Yeah, and I used to do that. You know, and now I farm it out a little bit. And, and part of it is because I have three kids now, and part of it is because the comedians are such a big part of the thing now that it's kind of a little less important what goes on in the restaurant. But as a matter of personal pride, yeah, I need to worry about the French fries, every order of French fries, so that worries me. So when you're helping Esty put together a lineup, what are you looking for? Like what kind of combination of personalities makes a really good lineup? Yeah, and I don't help her. She, she puts the whole thing together. But again, we're not reinventing the wheel. It's usually like a strong, upbeat opener. And then the acts which come in the middle, which can go either way. And it doesn't mean they're weaker acts. It's just, you know, they're, it's, like a, it's like fielding a, a lineup for a baseball team. And then hopefully having someone at the end who can close strong and can close that has a high batting average so that in case anybody else in the middle didn't do that well, at least we know that the last act is certain to, to kill. Some of the best acts don't always kill. Some of the best acts can be hit or miss. What is the single most exciting night you've ever had here? So the most exciting night was probably that night when it was like called a billion dollars of comedy by the New York Times, where it was like David Tell, Jerry Seinfeld, Aziz, Amy Schumer, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, and God, I I'm, gonna forget, I'm gonna forget one other huge name. Whatever. They all came down coincidentally. They all came down on the same night. So that was probably our were most they, How many of them were built? None of them were built. Wow. They, just, they just all Oof. showed up. Yeah. That's amazing. What was the atmosphere like in the room that night? It was like disbelief. Like, you know, we get a lot of people here who are like hardcore comedy fans. Like we're kind of the place where the comedy aficionados will come. So it's like you're, you're at a club somewhere to see some new music band and all of a sudden the Stones show up and then if that wasn't going to, then all of a sudden... Paul McCartney shows up, and then all of a sudden Elton John shows up. Like, the people just could, they, they could not believe that all their heroes were showing up like that. A lot of the really, really big names just drop in. And there's kind of a progression, like, with Aziz and Amy Schumer and a few of these people, Michelle Wolf. they were here before they were famous, and then they began to become famous, and then at some point it became clear they're just too famous to put on the lineup, you know, because they just start getting these crowds out there. Yeah, so what do you mean when you say too famous? Like right now, if we put Amy Schumer, like I, she might be fine right, going in the lineup. I don't know how she feels about it. But like, you know, it'd be like Beatlemania, you know, it'd be like crazy. So we, we just can't have that. So there's so that group of people. Even if you community. know in advance that Amy Schumer is going to be there, you don't put her on the lineup because no, you don't want Beatlemania? Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't know if she'd want to go on the lineup or not, but no, I, we wouldn't. So when someone like Schumer comes here at this point, are they testing out new material? Are they just like scratching an itch? Like what are they in it for? Yeah, well, it could be anything. They could be testing out new material. They could be practicing material that they that's already kind of like stamped for approval, but that they're getting ready for like hosting SNL or about getting ready to do an hour special or whatever it is. Or they could just 
be doing spots for the fun of it. They love to do spots. They love it. So it could be any of those things. And by the way, like somebody like up-and-comers now, like Jared Freed or Andrew Schultz, you know, there's a lot of people now who have huge followings that are totally under the radar if you're not part of their following. That's the, the bifurcated or multifurcated nature of social media. Like somebody can have 5 million YouTube hits and you would never heard of them. So there's there's a lot of these comedians have these really, really big followings and we're not even, we don't even realize it till we put them on the lineup. It's so interesting to think there's the sweet spot of someone who's famous enough like Michael Che, for instance, where you know you're going to fill the house and it'll be, I mean, you probably fill the house every night, do you? Yeah. Where it's not a liability to put him on the lineup because it won't be Beatlemania, but it's still like, you know he'll be really good. Is there a category of person who's like famous enough where you're happy that they're that famous or? Yeah, I mean, we get a lot of well-known, like Michael Che and I think Leslie Jones is on this week and uh, a lot of those SNL guys when they do comedy go on the lineup. There's a lot of really famous people who go on the lineup. Mike Biglia goes on the lineup and and, uh, I think Judd Apatow goes on the lineup. I'm not sure. Yeah, so how do you draw the distinctions between who goes on the lineup and who doesn't? Is it just an intuitive thing? No, we kind of let them decide. There's only so many Azizes and there's a few of these comedians who are able to sell out Madison Square Garden. There's a handful of them. And yeah, those are the ones. Does Louis go on the lineup now in order to give people a heads up? Louis wasn't going on the lineup. Then we tried to put him on the lineup and that kind of backfired. People complained about that, which I knew they were going to, but I did it anyway because what happened was that the people who complained about the fact that we were, I'm using scare quotes, surprising the audience with Louis, then were complaining about the fact that we were announcing that Louis was going to go on. So it was really just about Louis. And and, it's a, and that's their right, you know. So that didn't work out. So then we went back to um, just having him do surprise sets. But then it didn't last that long. Then he, like, he hasn't been here for like six, eight months already. He'd just been on tour. So he hasn't tried to come? No, he hasn't tried to come. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Are there certain nights you prefer here because there are a few tourists or fewer, more New Yorkers or fewer New Yorkers or whatever? Like, how does this no. sort of... You, you know, this is the, the fortunate situation we're in now. And I was reluctant to say these things because it sounds like I'm bragging in some way. And I don't mean it that way. But just to answer the question honestly, we're so fortunate now. Basically, every night is the same as every other night. There's no clear busier nights or slower nights. All right, we have four shows on Saturday and we only have three shows on a Monday. And the rooms, you know, the rooms are not that big. And all the shows are sold out. And quite often the most famous people will drop in weeknights because they might have gigs and stuff on the weekends. So, no, there's no... I mean, I I like to come Friday nights because I play guitar here Friday nights in the olive tree. And that's fun. But that's it. What is the most annoying part of your job? 
Honestly, the most annoying part of the job is the day-to-day stuff that every customer service boss has to deal with, like getting the, the host at the door to not be jaded, to not be short with a customer because they've answered the same question 30 different times. So do you have to tell them repeatedly, like, you got to be less jaded? And well, it's, you know, it's really hard. And, I, and, of course, you know, this is just the nature of being the boss that everybody kind of circles the wagons to protect employees and their friends and whatever it is. And I had to be the bad guy and I have to not, it just, I can't accept it. For instance, I go to Disney World. I know they must get a lot of annoying parents, I think, but the people there, they're always nice. And as I say to myself, I say, don't so listen to it. After Disney World? I mean, like, if, if it can be done, then I need to be doing it. And, and I'm not saying we are doing it. I'm saying that's the most annoying part of my job. Right. What is the maddest you've ever gotten at a comedian for whatever he or she said on stage? I, I got mad at a, a comedian one time for calling a customer a cunt. As like an HR issue, when that happens, what do you do? I mean, do you, how do you handle that? Do you talk to the comedian afterward or what? I called them in for a meeting. You know, they promised never to do it again and they didn't. Were they apologetic? Did they realize yes. it was Nick? Yeah, or were yeah, they yeah, like, yeah. that's my right? Yeah, it's no, 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 no. They, they know. These, I mean, they're professionals. They know. thing is, you can lose your mind on stage and you can, it, it's so high pressure. And if you have a bad temper, almost all of them at one time or another have let it get the better of them calling somebody the c word that's like over the top so was that like what if it was funny what if it landed as a joke and then we it, no but it wasn't it was it was an anger it was it an was an anger it was an anger yeah. if it was uh-huh. an, if it was a joke then i would probably have let it go even if somebody got offended a joke was a joke but yeah isn't that kind of hard to parse though no this to... wasn't hard to parse. no no, no it's really was straightforward <laughs> yeah this was this was the real thing what is the most annoying audience member you've ever encountered? There's, there's, there's not one particular audience member that was, that was annoying, but there's a type of a guy who's drunk, comes in drunk, and can't, sometimes in good faith, you know, is not the best judge of the fact that he's talking loud or whatever it is, and then you have to negotiate with him, and you don't want to be mean, and you don't want to drag him out physically, and you're trying to get him to be quiet. So this is, this is dicey. And um, it's also the riskiest thing we go through. That is always the scenario which, if you're not careful, can escalate into something that you just didn't see coming, either a fight or, God forbid, there's a place around the corner here, I don't want to say the name, where they threw out a customer who was deserved to be thrown out, and then the customer waited, and then when the bartender left at the end of the night, he shot him. Oh, my God. Yeah, so like you just never know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with a customer that in some way you humiliate in front of a crowd of people. So Nevertheless, how do you handle it? And is yeah, it on you, ha- you to deal with that person? No, it's on, I mean, the way I like to handle it whenever I can is to have a, this is going to sound sexist, I like to have a waitress, not even a, a waiter, a waitress, be the first line of interface because most people will react. They don't mind backing down or, or listening to a waitress so why is that that's just something that, like but what happens is when if that doesn't work and then like one of the burly security guys has to come talk to them now you kind of have a, a, a macho thing going on and just the fact that he's being told something in front of a room of people means he doesn't they doesn't want to do it no matter what it is it's really tough you know it's really tough do and, you go to other comedy clubs yeah, I just went, I just went to one, one a couple days ago, yeah. So what Sometimes are the kinds time. of things you noticed that like a normal customer or audience member wouldn't notice? Every single aspect. I noticed the lighting. I noticed the quality of the sound. I noticed the, for lack of a better word, the happiness of the atmosphere. Like the comedy cellar is very 
warm. It's very, there's a lot of twinkly lights and, and deep colors and, and kind of earthy vibes to it. Some of the other clubs can be very sterile or cold or just not, not a place that you feel nice sitting in. So when you're going to other clubs, is it for market research or can you really sit back and enjoy the comedy? It's, it's from, it's, uh, I just like to check in and see to make sure that there's nothing going on that I should know about and I'm doing wrong or whatever it is. Do you yeah. ever notice something specific that's happening that you should be doing that you feel like you're doing wrong? I did notice one time I went to a club years ago and they had a policy which was the same as our policy. It was about getting, you know, presenting your receipts when you leave. As I was walking out, I didn't have my receipt for some reason. And the guy at the door commanded me to go back to my table and get the receipt. And I didn't like it. I didn't like being told what to do, especially because it wasn't my fault. Like the waiter had, and ever since that, I've been very sensitive to that. And it still rears its ugly head, but I always tell the door guys, Somebody forgets their receipts. Do not tell them to go back to the table. Get the waitress to go back to the table, or just let them go. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just risk it. So you said you don't do stand up. You have no intentions of doing stand up. But from being in this business for so long, do you find yourself thinking, "Oh, that's a joke that I would make if I were on stage"? No. Like I, you're not I, putting I, together no. a secret set. No. I, I will. I will give one plug to a comedian, Gary okay. Goldman. You know who Gary Goldman is? Yeah. What What I do find myself saying with with Gary Goldman, as opposed to many of the other comics, I say to myself. If I were a stand-up comic, I could have never thought of that. Like, there's a lot of comedians who, and they're funny ones, who they're, they're, the universe of their jokes are within what I think is, could be achievable. Like, if I see a guitar player who is really good, I say, oh I, oh, I could play like that. But then you see someone like Goldman come up with this whole bit about, like, state abbreviations or his role-playing between college professors, whatever, and you say, well, that's, no, that's a whole nother level of talent. I could never do that. What would it be the advice you'd give to someone trying to open a comedy club in 2019? You know, I, I get people quite often contacting me about advice like that. And I always tell them they shouldn't do it. it it's it's it a is, bad business? It's not a great business. It's, I mean, we do very well now. Are we ready to start? Well, what time it is? Hey, everybody. Hello. Okay, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Okay. I tell people not to do it. It's, it's a great business for us now. For most of our existence, it was touch and go even when we were considered successful we were always like how are we going to survive another snowstorm and going into debt and things like that it was never it's not like you know printing money kind of business and on top of that if you do it anywhere but in new york city or los angeles you don't have access to the to the best comedians anyway or you have a headliner who might be one of the best comedians and so, so you don't even get the joy of surrounding yourself by this flock of really, really talented, fun people. So you're really becoming a merchant. You're selling, you could be selling steaks or textiles or you're selling a dude telling jokes. So it, I don't know what pleasure someone gets out of that business. Can you remember the single best joke you've ever heard here? No, I'm not, <laughs> I can't remember that. That's it for this episode of Working. Thank you for listening. Again, I'm your host, Laura Bennett. If you liked the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can write us at workingatslate.com. Working is produced by Jessamine Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Come back next week for another episode on New York's Comedy Cellar.